0: that movie was made 20 years ago and and i remember watching it thinking oh my goodness it's amazing what good people can be capable of like what you or i might even find ourselves doing if we make some wrong choices that send us down a darker slippery path and I think that kind of stuff can happen to any of us. And apparently the Apostle Paul thought so as well. And when we started this story last week of David and Bathsheba, we looked first at this warning that the Apostle Paul made many, many years later, hundreds of years later. He made this warning to the church. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, If you think you are standing strong, be careful for you too may fall into the same sin. And I think the Apostle Paul here is saying uh, to the person who thinks that they don't struggle with sin or fallenness anymore, that person is really the most vulnerable of, of all. And he's making the point in that statement, by the way, beware of your stuff, right? Your own issues, not, not the person next to you. Be aware of you and your own stuff. And we see a movie trailer like this one here and... and We could think, you know, steal millions of dollars? Well, I could never do that. And that's what I thought. And then I watched the movie and went, whoa, wow. And that verse flew through my mind. (laughs) Be careful, Doug. If you think you're standing strong, be, be careful. Be careful. And last week, we started looking in our series on the life of David. Last week, we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba, we only got to the first part of it. And if you want to turn to your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11, you can keep it open to that place. They'll be on the screen as well. And what I'm going to do this morning is kind of a running narrative on the story, and we're going to get through this and into chapter 12 to finish the story. But to catch us up in case you weren't here... Last week, we talked about how at this point in David's life, scholars think he was probably about 50 years old. He's been king of Israel for a number of years. He's had great success leading Israel. He's firmly established them as kind of the superpower in the region under his reign. And it's springtime, the time when kings go off to war every year. But this year, David says, skip it. I'm not going. And we noticed this in the story last week. And I want to do this again. I want to track the word sent, sent, and you might want to even note it uh, in, in your Bible, sent. Eugene Peterson notes that this is a key word in the story, and the word sent is used a number of times, most of the time, of David, and it's used to kind of show how he kind of plays God and tries to get what he wants in people's lives. So he sends here and he sends there, and, and as we looked at last week, and we'll hit this week as well, there's a number of places throughout this whole story where David has a fork in the road, these places where he could have a chance to stop and make the right choice. So watch for those places as well. Second Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time of the, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And, we'll pause for a second, last week we looked at this kind of spiritual drift factor at work in David, why it was such a big deal for him to stay home, and that was our first clue that something's up, so let's read on verse 2. One evening, David got out of bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said to David, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And again, this is another fork in the road, a warning light, like, uh, hey, uh, David, dude, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. She's not an object. But David, he just blows right past this warning light. In verse 4, it says, then David sent messengers to get her, that word send again there, right? This time he's not sending for information, he's sending for the woman, and he uses his power to get what he wants. He sent messengers to get her, it says, and then it says, she came to him and he slept with her, then she went back home. Now up until this point in the story, everything works the way that David plans, right? He plans it, he sees something that he wants, then he inquires, then he finds out, then he sends for her, then he sleeps with her, and then he sends her home. But then there's something that happens that's not in David's script. Look at verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And there's that word to send again, right? Only this time David is the sendee, not the sender, right? And he hadn't counted on this. And... You know, this always happens with sin. This always happens. Like, sin sets in motion spiritually destructive forces that we cannot control, no matter how in control we think we are, right? We, we just can't do it. And sin always does that. And it can be external forces like this, like pregnancy, or it could be disease, or something like that, or, or oftentimes it's internal forces, like the loss of our character, the loss of innocence but sin will always set into motion forces that we can't control and this brings david to another fork in the road Whew, okay now how will david respond now that the results of his sin have spun out of his control which <laughs> they always do he'd already gone down this road of giving into temptation that warning light went off but, but 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 there's always the crossroad then after the fact as well after we have sinned like how do we respond after we've sinned, when we become aware that we have done wrong and the consequences start to unfold. Like, it's so fun when kids are really little. Anybody have a little one that, that the first couple times they think they got away with something, right? Like you go and they have got the cookie out of the cookie jar or whatever they ended up doing. And you come in the room and there's, you know, either cookies all over their face or all over the counter. But as a smart, wise parent, you say... <clears throat> Um, Noah, were you in the cookie jar, right, right? And then they give you the, no, of course not, right? They're just not smart enough to see they've left evidence. Does anybody have a child like that? <laughs> Has anybody been a child like that? Both guilty here. My mom's nodding, yes. I've been both. Um, you know, at that point when kids are little and you, you kind of point out, uh, yeah, here's the deal, champ. You know, a lot of times they just feel horrible and sad and bad or they cry, right? Because um, they haven't got good at hiding yet. They don't know, oh, if I keep working this, they find out pretty quick, right? <laughs> ah, if I keep working this angle, I might get away with it. And with David, when, when this came up, um, he could have thrown himself to his knees. He could have then, right then, he's busted, he's caught. He could have confessed to God and to Bathsheba and to Uriah and to his people what he had done. He could have repented. He could have tried to set things right. He could have done that. Like, he could have gone down that fork in the road. It would have been a tough one. But he doesn't do it. Like, he goes down a darker road because he still thinks he can control things. Isn't that interesting what power does? The more power it seems that humans have, the more we think we can control the outcomes. And sometimes the darker it gets in what we try to do or say or deny It's fascinating. So, we keep going in the story, and now the word sent is getting thrown all over the place now. Ready? Okay, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. So now he's going into overdrive here. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, this is Bathsheba's husband, David asked him how Joab was. I mean, just, ugh. Look at this stuff that he's doing. I mean, just think of the damage he's doing to his integrity. He's playing politics here. Right here, I think he looks more like his predecessor, King Saul, than he does like David, the man after God's own heart. But but David asked Uriah, How's Joab? And, and he asked him how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And this was a euphemism that the Hebrews would use for sex. We'd say today, you know, go home, sleep with your wife. And and David thought, okay, there we go. I think I fixed the problem, right? He thought he's back in control, so Uriah leaves the palace, and and a gift from the king is sent after him. And then verse 9, But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? But Uriah said to David, well, the ark of the Lord and, and, and Israel and Judah, they're all staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open fields. How can I go to my house right now and drink and then lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I mean, dude, this Uriah guy is committed, right? He's committed. He's passionate. He's faithful. He's dedicated. This is a top-notch warrior, But what do you think that reply did to David? Well, he just got fired up to try harder. So look at verse 12. David said to Uriah, "Eh, stay here one more day and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah didn't go home, right? He went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. And I just stop for a second and think, how ironic is it that this foreigner, right, Uriah the Hittite, he's more faithful to God than David is right here. In fact, Uriah is more faithful to God while he's drunk than David is while David's sober. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, look back at the story. How far is David willing to go? As far as he has to. Verse 14, in the morning, David... Notice here, um, it says he's writing a letter to Joab. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, right? He, so he has Uriah carry this letter, his own death sentence. This is cold, right? In the letter he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. I mean, David's willing to commit murder if he has to. This is not in a moment of passion either. This is calculated, cold-blooded murder. And he makes Joab, the commander, an accessory to the crime. And he's picked his accomplice very well because Joab agrees to do it. Now, notice something else about this. Uh, If Joab's going to have Uriah killed, he can't just send Uriah out by himself. He's got to put a whole division of Israelite troops in a place where there's going to be heavy fighting and a lot of loss of life. So Joab and David are willing to sacrifice all kinds of innocent soldiers in order to get this one man killed. And Joab, he goes along with it. He deliberately sacrifices a number of innocent men to be butchered so that Uriah will die too. So fast forward here, Joab sends a messenger back to David, tells the messenger, hey, listen, tell David this is what happened, and tell him that we sent these troops real close to the city wall, a lot of them died, and if David gets angry because it sounds like such an incompetent thing to do, then at the end of this account, say these words to him, say, and also your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. And of course, Joab knows that these will silence any protests that David might make, and then David's response to that is, heartless look at verse 22 the messenger sent out and when he arrived he told david everything joab had told him to say the messenger said to david the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open we drove them back to the city gate then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died moreover your servant uriah the hittite is dead David told the messengers, well, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And you just, like, go, whoa, wow. The things that we are capable of doing, <laughs> the slippery slope when we start to cover up. And, and these words came from the same mouth is the man that prayed these amazing prayers that we use in the Psalms, right? This is the same mouth that defied the giant Goliath when he was a young man. This is the same one. See, David takes this fork in the road now towards cover-up. And John Orberg writes, The consequences of sin will always lead to one of two results. Either, on the one side, repentance, confession, restitution... Or, on the other side, cover-up and more sin. And that 20-year-old movie, A Simple Plan, that we showed the trailer of, it's a story of exactly this. Like, how these characters spiraled into unfathomable, unfathomable sin, just trying to cover up their previous crimes and sins. See, it always leads one way or the other. A guy named Neil Flanagan writes, one of the primary images for sin in Scripture is disease and contagion because it breeds. It breeds, right? Like, think about this in the workplace, right? A a guy doesn't finish his project for his job, so he lies. Or he calls in sick. Or maybe he says, well, it's almost done when he hasn't even started. (laughs) And then he turns in a bad product, and he gets defensive and says, well, the instructions weren't very clear, right? Right? But then he feels guilty about lying and blaming, and a little jealous that he sees his coworkers did a better job than him. So then he gossips. He starts throwing around possible rumors about them, so he can feel better about himself. It just takes root. It's like a contagion. It breeds. It spreads. And probably, if any of us or all of us were honest, every one of us in this room could think of a little, you know, fudging that we did, or we'll call it what it is. I'll time that we lied, a lie that we told, something that spun out of control? I sure can. Or we can think of times where we spread that gossip, or we asked a question in a way that made people wonder about someone, or we spread dissension and just watched it go. And if we didn't get caught, Whoever we involved in the lie, by the way, if we don't get caught, the people that we kind of involve in that little plan, we get this little tension, this weirdness between us and them, this weird vibe that impacts our ability to trust and to be real and to be honest with them. Like if you're on a team with someone or on a ministry team even, and someone keeps perpetuating something that's not true, it just adds a strain and a twist and you can't walk in the light together. Because sin breeds, it spreads just like disease. And back here in our story with David, verse 27, he's almost finished with his containment, his cover-up. That verse 27, the word sent is used again because in this, after her time of, of, of mourning, David sends for Bathsheba once more and has her brought to his palace and he marries her and he's done it. He's gotten away with it. And nobody will ever know. See, David thought that the great danger of his life was, oh man, somebody's going to find out. But of course, that's not his greatest danger. The greatest danger is that no one would find out and that his soul um, would be destroyed, that his heart would be hardened. See, that's the bigger danger. No one finds out and I get away with it. See, that's always the way it is with sin. We get so afraid. Oh man, somebody's going to find out. But, but friends, that's not our great danger. Our greatest danger is that nobody will find out and that we will live our lives in darkness and hiddenness. Because you can't have real connection with people when you're hiding. That thing you might be hiding from your friend, your spouse. Your spouse. That will damage intimacy. It will. Look at the verse um, 27. The old King James Version translates it like this. It said, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, David covered this up from just about everybody. He could fool the army. He could, he could kill Uriah. He could marry Bathsheba. He could adopt the baby. He could con the whole nation. But there is one who sees everything with absolute clarity and he will call us into account. His justice will not be evaded and he, God, will not be taken in by the cleverest of our cover-ups and it's for our own good. It's for our own good. It's out of his love for us. And David's next crossroad comes, and it involves the pronouncement of the judgment of God. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, because this is in the Old Testament. Things look a little differently now. But this is his last chance in this story, and so we meet a new character here, a character that we haven't met up until now in this story, the prophet Nathan. 1 Samuel, now we move to chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now the Lord... Sent Nathan to David We see that sent word again, right? And that's the last time we'll see it in the story David's been playing God, right? Sending here, sending there With a lot of people's lives up until now And probably doing it for over a year Because by now a baby has been born And now the Lord sends And when the Lord sends There ain't nobody else that's going to be sending anymore, right? God's the last sender And and David's been playing God with Bathsheba, with Uriah, with Joab, with the army, with all of Israel. It's almost like he's a spider just sitting in the middle of a web, weaving the web, getting away with it. But always, like always, friends, always, sin involves this temptation that it has from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And you can be like God. You can get away with it. You can decide and control. You can be like God. But one day, God is going to be like God. (laughs) and right, God's going to do the sending. And out of his love, friends, out of his love, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Now, Nathan has given a great deal of thought about how he's going to approach the king. Like, you know, if there's somebody that you love and you see him going down the wrong path... Like, you got to help them, but usually coming right at them and just, you know, barking at him is not going to help. Um, and Nathan has to find a way to get past all of David's defenses and the hardness of his heart, so he thinks, and I'm sure he prays, and, <clears throat> and finally, he gets it. He's going to tell a story. He's going to tell a story. Look what he says in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich the other poor the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought he raised it it grew up with him and his children he it shared his food drank from his cup and even slept in his arms it was like a daughter to him now a traveler came To the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. I mean, he tells this really artful uh, parable, really. And then the next verse, look at David's response. After hearing this story, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. I mean, he gets all fired up about this guy, right? How could anybody do such a terrible thing? Well, honestly, I think David's a lot like maybe me and maybe you. Because I can be listening to a message or maybe even writing one. I can get all fired up about somebody else's shortcomings or their sin, and it's so easy for me to ignore my own. Right? you ever, you ever find yourself listening to a message and, and you're thinking to yourself, Wow, I am so grateful for this message today because I know that the Lord has directed that message precisely to the person who's sitting right next to me, right? Right. I'm so glad that they're here today. God softened their heart, right? But it's really easy for us to kind of go down that road, and that's what David does here. We all can do that. We can get full of righteous indignation about this kind of stuff because it makes us feel, you know, pretty good about ourselves. And David, in the midst of all this darkness all this self-deception, he's so full of himself and blind that he says, as surely as the Lord lives. I mean, that spiritual-sounding baloney language. I had to find the right word there. I mean, ugh, the Lord, right? As surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And then in the story comes one of the most courageous statements in all of the Bible can you imagine if you were Nathan telling this story in front of the king? Imagine what would be going on inside of you. Like this is, this is the king. He's not just a friend. He's not just a peer. This is King David. And he's not the same David that had shepherded little sheep. This is not the same David anymore who defied Goliath. This is now a ruthless man. He's a liar, an adulterer, a murderer. He didn't hesitate to sacrifice the life of Uriah or the life of who knows how many of his own innocent soldiers. And so Nathan is standing before the king, risking his life, but he doesn't waver. He looks David in the eye and says, you are that man. You are that man. He's saying, David, this is your sin. This is how far you've gone. This is the place to which you have descended. This is your story, David. You are that man. And that's how he delivers God's message to him. And can you imagine, again, just picture the scene. Nathan, he's finished, and who knows for how long there was just silence right there. Can you imagine, like, if this was a movie? There's just silence. And I'm thinking that I bet David, who's very skillfully woven things, I bet this thought occurs to him. I bet he thinks, you know... (laughs) I can control this problem, too. I took care of Bathsheba. I took care of Uriah. I took care of Joab. And I took care of the army. And this is just one man, one prophet, one Nathan. I can take care of him. And if I get rid of him, (laughs) I am home free. No one will ever, ever, ever know. And listen, I can make up for it. After this, I can be a really good man, a good king from here on out going forward. And the reason I think that it's likely that a voice like that was going on inside of his head is because he's been listening to that kind of voice for a long time at this point in the story. But thank God, somewhere, somehow, another voice is the one that stood out to him. And and maybe it was that same voice, and it came from his past, that he remembered as an innocent boy when he was shepherding the sheep and, and God would care for him whenever enemies would come at him. Maybe the voice that he listened to this time was the voice that, that whispered to him long ago when he was full of idealism and vision and he saw this Philistine giant Goliath, this giant that was blaspheming God, and David all by himself stood up to that giant and God delivered him. Maybe, maybe that little voice that he heard was that same voice that reminded him of the exhilaration of what it was to actually like, fight for God. Just him and God together, they could get through anything. Maybe it was the same voice that, that reminded him about the time not that long ago where he had danced before the Lord God, full of love and passion for God, undignified, willing to take a risk and just worship because what mattered to him was glorifying God Maybe it was the same voice that that his friend Jonathan, who had been Saul's son, his best friend, said, David, don't forget, you are the Lord's anointed. And I wonder if there was another, maybe, harder voice that he had to consider at this moment. Like, hey, by the way, David, remember King Saul? (laughs) You keep going down this road, that's what you're going to turn into. Like, you're so close right now. There's some Saul in you. And pretty soon, if you keep this up, Saul is all you'll be. So again, I just imagine the scene. There's Nathan, there's David. That's it. Silence. David stands at the fork in the road, two choices before him. And then this miracle happens. And it's this miracle that sometimes does happen to a heart when our hearts have been hard or cold or stony for so long. And then his heart melted. And, and this man who'd been walking in darkness and weaving a web for a long time took his first weak and feeble step back into the light and he threw himself on the mercy of God and he says out loud the truth. He speaks, verse 13, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Like he gets it loud and clear, right? I am that man. I'm the man in the story, Nathan. I'm I'm the man who doesn't deserve to live. That's that's my sin. That's my story. I'm that man. And some of us are here this morning who need that same miracle in your heart. That same miracle. Maybe you don't even know it. Maybe, like David, you have sat through messages in church. You have maybe thought about the brokenness, the sin, the fallenness of other people, or that they're worse than you anyway. But maybe in this story today, there's a softness in you, that for whatever reason, you're aware of your own story, maybe the ways that you haven't lived into the things that God's called you and created you to be the ways that he's invited you to live. And it's his love and mercy, it's amazing grace. He's not mad. He's not mad. He's not angry at you. And maybe some of you can even think back to a day where your greatest closeness to God, maybe you were someone who at one point you did love to enter in and worship God. Or maybe you you used to love to to, to sacrifice and serve and love people out of this heart that God had given you but maybe something happened and you've drifted for for a little while or maybe for a long while. Maybe you've drifted a little bit, maybe you've drifted a lot. And so I want to ask you what I've been asking myself this week. Will you do what David did? Will you say to God even right now, I'm the man. I am that woman. This is my story. God, this is not about my spouse. It's not about the person sitting next to me. This is, this is my story. And I want to give you a couple minutes to do that. Um, because in our lives it's so crazy and we just move and move and move and do the next thing and the next thing. So right here in this holy moment, um, it's a very important thing. I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to give you a few moments of time as just confession between you and God as we stand at our own crossroads and, and before you dive into it, just for some of you, I, I really strongly feel like this is an important moment. Now, maybe there's some area of your life, maybe it's a small one, but it might get real big. Or maybe in your story it already is real big. Maybe God's been trying to get through to you, but for whatever reason it hasn't happened. I honestly believe that at this moment, God is waiting for you right now to come to him in humility and brokenness and, and just say, all right, God. I am that man. I am that woman. And then just name whatever area it is, right? And, and just tell God you're tired. You're tired of holding him at arm's length. You're tired of holding him away. You're tired of having to walk with this secret and this darkness, this brokenness, this cloud or guilt. Just tell him you want to come home. So just take a moment right now. We're going to take a a minute or two here just in absolute silence between you and God, whatever it is in your heart that needs to be confessed, and just confess it to him. Don't resist him anymore. Just tell him, I'm that man or I'm that woman. Just talk to God right now.